All right, well, good afternoon to everybody who is joining us. My name is Holly Keat. I am a transplant pulmonologist at you know, University of Texas Health in San Antonio, and very excited for our panel today where we're gonna be discussing post-COVID fibrosis uh, with a special focus on treatment and transplant. So I am joined by an excellent panel today, and we are gonna have a fairly informal discussion and hope to address a lot of the questions that were sent in ahead of time. But we'll also hope to get to some of the questions that you might have as we have this discussion. So please enter those questions into the chat, um, into the question and answer, and we will try to get to as many as possible, specifically reserving some time at the end. Um, so first of all, I'm gonna uh, introduce you to our panelists, and then we will get started with this, this great topic for today. So um, first joining us from Dallas, we have Dr. Corey Kershaw, who is uh, an associate professor of medicine at UT Southwestern, specializing in pulmonology and with a special emphasis on pulmonary fibrosis. And then we have Dr. Anna Podolanchuk, sorry, uh, who is an assistant professor from Cornell, also a pulmonologist and specializing in pulmonary fibrosis. And then also from New York, we have Dr. Harpeet Graywall, who is a transplant pulmonologist at New York Presbyterian. And we are going to begin our discussion about post-COVID fibrosis, kind of talking about um, what our experts are seeing in these patients and, and what we're seeing from a pathogenesis standpoint. And so I'm gonna ask Dr. Kershaw if you would jump in and give us a little bit of an introduction to the topic. Thanks, Holly. So I, when I'm thinking about these patients, you know, and I think what we're going to spend most of our time talking about today is outpatients. You know, the patients have survived their illness um, and they've left the hospital with some degree of morbidity after, after their illness. And I, I, I think about these patients in a few, as in a few different categories. And I'll, I'll reference back to a really excellent article by Aaron Holly that was in the, um, that was in chess physician in the August issue. And he really framed the argument um, in such a great way that I, I use it actually as a, for teaching purposes now for patients and for our fellows that we have patients who, um, who survived their illness and now are left with some residual acute lung injury that may or may not progress to a fibrotic phenotype somewhere down the road in terms of time. There are patients who had a pre-existing interstitial lung disease and then became sick with COVID and an acute lung injury. And then we have to decide what happens to those patients. Does their disease change into something else? Are they, um, are, is their disease now going to accelerate to a more fibrotic phenotype? And then there's this really curious, and I think in some ways a little bit more difficult to pin down group that may have had a milder illness, perhaps not a lot of chest imaging, such as CT scans to really know what was happening to them, minimal oxygen requirements. They leave the hospital, follow up with either their primary care doctor or even a pulmonologist because of maybe some residual symptoms, maybe not. And they have some abnormality on their CT scan that was unexpected. You know, we could even call that an interstitial lung abnormality in ILA. And I think any discussion we have about what to do with post-COVID fibrosis, we have to define our terms and decide which type of patient we're talking about, because we may approach those patients very differently. It's, it's, even though the pandemic feels like it's been going on forever, it's still rather early in the natural history of these patients that are recovering. And it's hard to say what will happen to those patients who have de novo lung disease after severe illness, what happens to them later on. The ones that already had some disease beforehand, 
we might be able to dive in with those patients and do a little more because that's something we might be more comfortable with. So what do we currently understand about the pathogenesis in, I guess, those patients that have kind of a de novo? Um, I'm not going to speak as an expert histopathologist or pulmonary physiologist at all. Um, there's been a few people that have looked at this, at least trying to make a direct comparison as far as what happens in non-COVID ARDS and with the um, acute lung injury of COVID. And there, there are a lot of similarities. Um, University of Michigan published a really nice study um, in the last year or so about this, where they looked at their own population of patients matched with historical controls that had non-COVID ARDS and showed that their physiology was very similar. Their um, outcomes are very similar. Their later on morbidities are very similar. So that at least would suggest from a clinical perspective, the histopathology may be very similar to what we know about um, the ARDS that occurs for non, from non-COVID etiologies. Um, I'm not sure I know exactly deep down what's happening to those patients. And I, I certainly would welcome the panel to, to discuss that more, but at least, you know, if, if you recall in the beginning, there was a lot of argument about, wait, these patients are different. Their ARDS is different. We need to manage them differently. You know, that probably is still a little bit up for discussion. I'm not sure at my institution, we spent a whole lot of time trying to divide those patients up, but at least there's some suggestion in the literature that they may behave the same after um, recovering from their illness. And to me, that would suggest that maybe the, the patho pathophysiology is very similar to what we know about ARDS now. I agree. I think there's a, a spectrum of changes that we see in the acute illness that then potentially in some patients progress to um, different patterns on CAT scans and histopathology, and histopathology. We know in some patients um, with either mild or even severe COVID, there's um, primarily an organizing pneumonia pattern on CAT scan and there's inflammatory changes um, that are similar to what we would see in um, other types of organizing pneumonia after lung injury. And then there are patients who have more severe illness and have more widespread lung injury and DAD and you know, classic ARDS and then go on to have more um, post-ARDS fibrosis and um, organized, um, organized changes. So there's a, a, whole, a whole spectrum from more um, inflammatory changes to you know, primarily architectural distortion and fibrotic disease and stage fibrosis. And I mean, I think everyone who's in pulmonary and everybody in the world knows that a lot of people in the world have now had COVID. So is there any sense for, what are we talking about in terms of the number of people who are going to go on to develop fibrosis after their COVID? Um, I can take this one. Uh, so it, it's hard to know. I think there have been a couple of well-done studies that have tried to look at the epidemiology. Most of them are sort of in the relative short term. So at three outcomes at three or four months in terms of imaging. Um, so there's a lot of different case series. And so you have to look at who is, you know, what, who's in the denominator. There are two large studies, relatively large that I've seen that did a good job of looking at everybody who was hospitalized. One was published in Annals of ATS and looked at outcomes um, of hospitalized, patient, hospitalized patients with COVID who were um, then followed up at three months with, with phone calls and imaging. And in that study, they showed that um, about, I think it was about 5% had um, either organizing pneumonia or some fibrotic disease. So it was a relatively small number of patients, 
um, if you look at the whole denominator, there was a JAMA study that showed that looked at imaging at four months um, in patients who were hospitalized, I believe, in the UK. And in that study, they um, again they screened patients for symptoms, and for patients who were invited for follow-up imaging, about 60% of them had abnormal imaging. But if you look at the whole denominator of fibrotic, and include the whole denominator of hospitalized patients, so about 7% who had fibrotic disease. Um, so I, I think it's probably somewhere in the 5 to 10% range for patients who were hospitalized with severe COVID. But it, it's a little bit unclear. And when we're seeing our patients as they're recovering from this, do we have any sense about the timing of when they might start to develop changes on a CT that would be more fibrotic or what the natural history would be? I realize that this is all, you know, relatively recent in the course of human history, but do we know anything about how likely they are to progress or? I, I, I think that it, it requires pretty um, regular follow-up to answer that question. Um, there, there's been a couple of pretty good guideline papers out there. The British Thoracic Society published a guideline about how to follow up patients um, for this. And I can, I know some people are chatting about asking for links and I can put the link to that study um, in the chat so people can look at it. It's got a nice little algorithm about what to do. And if this is abnormal, then, then, to do this. Once again, it was actually, it was published pretty early in the pandemic. So these guidelines will certainly evolve over time. Um, I, I think after the person leaves the hospital, I, I think they should see a pulmonologist. I think they should have a CT scan. Three months is probably the, the longest interval that I would wait to do that. Um, you need to establish some sort of baseline and then follow them on a regular basis to, to see what happens. Um, most of the studies that at least address doing something to these patients, there's usually some, you know, follow-up from six weeks to three months, like, um, like Anna talked about. Um, and you have to start making treatment decisions then to know, at least have an idea of what's going to evolve over time. Um, I've, you know, I know a lot of us are probably going to talk about our own experience with taking care of, of patients, you know, um, after COVID and, and I've, I've seen many different flavors of that follow-up where, you know, the patients who were probably pretty sick had some leftover ground glass opacifications at the six week mark. Um, someone like that, I might just follow serially and see how they resolve and not do anything at all. Um, and then someone else, someone I've just, I just saw this week um, who was pretty sick, never needed um, mechanical ventilation, but did need quite a bit of um, oxygen support. He's got a pretty abnormal CT scan and we're still watching that evolve over time, not treating him though, because his symptoms are really um, not nearly as involved. He's not really affected symptom as symptom wise as he is a CT scan. So a lot of this, you, you know, until we really have a much better, knowledge of the natural history of, of post-COVID interstitial lung disease, a lot of this is going to be, you know, based on the individual scenario, I think. And, and maybe we'll learn more. Like maybe we should be treating these patients a lot earlier because of what may happen two years from now. Time will tell with that. Yeah, I just want to add in terms of the timeline of the evolution, as, as we're learning about this disease, I do think that it, it depends also on what subgroup of patients we're talking about. Going back to, to Corey's first point, 
uh, that there are different subtypes of patients. There are obviously those patients who had severe illness, were mechanically ventilated in the hospital, and those patients generally seem to have um, disease on discharge, and we're still learning how that disease, involve, disease evolves, but a lot of them, uh, the fibrosis doesn't necessarily progress over the six or 12 month period in the small case series that we have. But for patients who may have had some early or underlying ILD that now had an exacerbation or um, an accelerated uh, progression of their disease, um, whether because they were at risk for ILD or had um, ILAs or clinical disease, those patients have to be watched very closely because some of them can progress very rapidly and others um, maybe not so rapidly. Yeah. I mean, you can almost see this as being an exacerbation trigger for those patients that may have you know, the kind of disease that you and I would follow in clinic and, and just, you know, we're going to watch this for now. This is not really even a fibrotic phenotype at this point. It's something so early. I'm, I'm not going to dive in with antifibrotic therapy. I, I certainly am an early starter with antifibrotic therapy in my practice, but maybe some of those patients that I'm not starting, they get sick with COVID. I, my, my whole decision point changes them because they're, they're going to be in trouble. And, and I, that's somebody that I would start treating a lot earlier than I would otherwise. Um, I wonder if you guys have seen um, some of these patients that have maybe been on ECMO or been on high amount of mechanical ventilation support, but are ultimately able to wean from that degree of support, but then go on to continue to need some, some form of oxygen support. Have you guys followed those patients in clinic and what seems to happen with them over the months that follow? Maybe we'll start this question first with Anna and then, um, and then Corey can weigh in also. Yeah, sure. I mean, those are the tough cases, right? Because they are so sick and then they improve, but then they have just severe, you know, residual fibrosis in their lungs. And it's hard to know. I mean, some of them do stabilize. And in my experience in the patients that I've seen in clinic, they don't necessarily develop a progressive fibro- fibrosing ILD beyond the existing damage um, and fibrosis that they have on hospital discharge. And in, in some of them, um, actually, we do see slow improvement. Um, those patients are generally so sick and have so many other comorbidities Uh, and in those patients, I think you have to treat the whole patient. So yes, their lungs are damaged, but they, you know, potentially have um, kidney injury, they have diabetes, they have so many other comorbidities. Um, and so you have to pay attention to those issues, um, and not just, you know, start them on antifibrotics and call it a day. You have to, I think pulmonary rehab, aggressive rehabilitation, um, can go a really long way and um, probably has a greater benefit in those patients than, um, than antifibrotic therapy. So yes, we see them, they're tough. Um, and I think, you know, I want to know what Corey has to say, but I also, I think for those patients, I, w- I want to know what her pre has to say in terms of evaluation for transplant, because you're always on the fence. Like at what point do you refer them? Um, you know, should they be evaluated? Um, I, I definitely think that the probant, not think, I mean, the preponderance of evidence out there about who can develop a post COVID, you know, ILA post COVID respiratory issue, the more severe, Ill, more severely ill the patient is in hospitalization. Those are the people that you generally have to worry about. So, you know, Anna, I could, I, I worry about these patients sort of in a different direction because as you rightly pointed out, 
you know, someone who's on ECMO, I mean, our, in my institution, our, our ECMO survivors, I mean, they're needing ECMO up to three months sometimes, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, you're really deeply involved with these patients for mechanical support for a long time. Once you take that step and, and you're right, you know, they're, they're physically debilitated. There there's tons of issues with trying to get patients weaned off all the narcotics and sedatives that we have them on just to, you know, get them to that point. I, I worry a little bit about those patients that some of the you know, follow up in terms of their potential to develop a fibrosing ILD may get lost in all of that because I'm so focused on getting the patient to walk again, getting the patient to, you know, return to some semblance of, of normal life that, you know, that may be six months after survivor longer, and we may miss our window to intervene on something that may develop later on. Um, it, you know, again, the, these patients are, it's a giant package of trouble that we have to really be, be paying attention to. And the lungs are a big part of that. Absolutely. So I think let's shift a little bit to, to talk a little bit more interventions and treatment and things that we can do for these patients. Um, so since we're kind of discussing about this timing of when would we, before we talk about the antibiotics and stuff, uh, let's just get that out of the way. I think that's the question that everyone's mind uh, for heartbeat. When is it time to call you? Um, I think you can always call me. Um, there's, you know, it's very difficult um, because I think oftentimes in the beginning, we were just trying to do collateral damage control in a sense when patients are very sick in the hospital. So, so I, I often like to separate these patients into inpatient referrals and outpatient referrals. Uh, I think outpatient is a little bit easier because uh, oftentimes a patients have a pulmonologist already that's following them. And I think I want to go back to Corey's point of saying that all of these patients that are being discharged with some form of pulmonary involvement should have a pulmonologist that's keeping an eye on them. And at signs of deterioration early on involving the transplant pulmonologist. And, and I want to take even a step back uh, when it comes to lung transplantation. I think, I think this is a, this is a problem that's a systemic problem. It requires systemic solutions with a multidisciplinary approach, a collaboration. Uh, if you are not a transplant center, I think partnering with a transplant center and having active conversations about, you know, who could be considered a candidate. Um, and when we think about that, uh, really we worry about a lot of the acute patients and the inpatients. Uh, oftentimes uh, we're getting many calls during the week um, uh, I just got off the phone right before the webinar about a, a patient who's COVID in an outside hospital has been there for months um, on high flow. And one of, one of the questions that often comes up, uh, you know, what's the patient's uh, physical status and they're bed bound and they can't lift their arms, they can't even stand up. And I think that creates a challenge because you're asking us to take on a very critically ill patient and then put them through a, a traumatic surgery that's going to further be in, in a very high catabolic state to heal and then subsequently recover that patient. Uh, I think that's a very big challenge. Uh, oftentimes that's not necessarily a good candidate for transplant because uh, you, you already have enough um, risk from doing a lung transplant surgery in an otherwise ideal candidate. In these patients that are in hospitals over time, they accumulate risk, they accumulate complications. And then the ability um, 
critical illness, weakness, myopathy, um, certainly presents a challenge to put somebody through a major surgery. So, so there are two types of inpatients uh, we often get called about, those that are in the ICUs, anywhere from being on a mechanical ventilator to uh, being on ECMO support, or ECMO support with mechanical ventilation. I think as a, a and I'm, I'm just gonna highlight some of the data when we, when we look at real world data currently from the ELSA registry, it's about 10,000 patients in the US around 6,600 patients. Uh, and, and the mortality on ECMO is reaching around 50%. So all in all, you're already, uh, you know, in a coin flip situation. And if you're doing ECMO at a center where you don't have a good, uh, you know, relationship or, or, or a process of referring to a transplant center, I would advise that you start building that relationship so that you can help patients transfer over to those centers that can help in certain select patients. Um, with regards to patients that are, that are not on ECMO, that are on the floors, that are on high flows, like this patient that I just talked to. Uh, you know, if you're on 100% high flow, you're on 40 liters, it limits our ability to evaluate a patient. Evaluations can take time in a normal setting of a lung transplant recipient or potential recipient. Um, and then I think the major hurdle often that we forget about is how do we transfer a patient that's on 100% high flow, 40 liters, and using non-breather, uh, there are no ambulances that can transfer a patient in that kind of uh, state. So I think that's a major challenge in itself. Um, so so there, there are little things that I think that are important to even logistics rather than just being candidates that need to be thought of. Um, but having a, a good partnership with programs, I think that's a first start. And then working in multidisciplinary teams, um, you know, uh, we are blessed here at Columbia to have great surgical, medical, ICU, ECMO, you name it, support. And oftentimes when there's a patient, we all put our heads together to see if it's something that's feasible. And I think having an active conversation with your team, having an active conversation with your referring providers uh, on patients that potentially may be candidates that are candidates on how to maneuver getting them over to your hospital. I think the other challenge is also there's a limitation in beds because certainly while certain parts of the United States is, are doing better, there are parts of the United States where you know, hospitals just don't have capacity right now. So you're looking at a wait time at an outside hospital. So I think many challenges going from all the way inpatient referrals, inpatient acute referrals uh, to outpatient. Outpatient referrals, I, I think following our standard you know, selection criteria guidelines, I am, again, in my practice, I always, whenever I talk to people that refer to me, patients, is that, you know, you, sh you should refer a patient as, as soon as you think about transplant or if they're going on oxygen. I think it's important to have a discussion. It doesn't mean they're going to get a transplant. I think the idea of a transplant and conveying information on outcomes in lung transplant, um, you know, and, and for a patient to digest that information requires time requires multiple meetings because uh, as many of you know that, you know, work in ILD and transplant, the outcomes are not as great as we think they are compared to, for example, heart, kidney, liver. And, and I think a patient needs to understand what they're getting themselves into. One of my mentors of um, the in clinic always, often always said, you know, it's not a panacea. There's no right or wrong answer in transplant, but one thing we should try to do is provide choice to our patients. And I think that can only be done if we attack something like this early.
So I think from an outstand, outside standpoint, same ILD, you, know, you start to see a decline. Uh, some of them will decline rapidly. I'm not sure how to identify them. I think that's where people like Anna and Corey come into play. They help us quite a bit. Uh, and if you're seeing early deterioration, I mean, that's, that should prompt a visit. We will work them up. And if they stabilize, we wait. We don't have to go on the list. We don't have to transplant today. But at least we are aware of this situation, aware of this patient. It makes it much harder when they're acutely sick. I think I'm talking a lot, so I'm going to stop here to see if I can clarify further. Yeah, I, I think this statement, I, I said this to a patient in the hospital yesterday, the wrong time to start talking about transplant is when you need the transplant. You, you have to start having the conversations before you get to that point. And it's, it's, it's hard. You're right. I mean, it's these, these diseases, you know, there's not, you know, we're kind of talking about even some non-COVID ILDs, you know, the, lots of times the natural history, it, it changes year to year with an individual patient. And, you know, your crystal ball fails frequently. And, and like I said, you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, our transplant center is very active in Dallas. We do a lot of lung transplant and they always say the worst thing that happens is you refer us a patient and we tell you it's not time. You know, that's the worst thing that happens if someone's referred early. Um, these inpatient referrals are hard. I mean, th those are just really, really tough because the patients are so sick. Um, you know, transportation is one thing, you know, you get the patients to your hospital and then it becomes a challenge just to do things, just to do the workup. You know, how do you do a, you know, a colonoscopy on somebody who's on hundred percent oxygen? It, it's, it's not, it's just not possible. And then you're left with some of these, you know, second tier evaluation mechanisms that were, you're always kind of worried. Do we really vet the patient appropriately? Um, th these are really hard things. And furthermore, your beds are built up because the patients are so sick. They stay in that ICU bed for 60 days, 80 days. And it, 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 picking the right candidates for any of these things is, is there, it'll be a challenge forever. I'm sure. I mean, I think going off of what just Corey just said, I think there's simple things that you can think of. It's, uh, for example, is this patient ambulatory? Do we think this is a patient that can go through the stress of surgery and be able to be rehabbed afterwards? You know, so we, we always ask for these things. Sometimes I ask patients to be rehabbed and we have been successful. I can think of one COVID patient off the top of my head that I follow, a young lady at an outside hospital. I worked with a pulmonologist who was not ambulating. They ambulated the patient, rehabbed her. They ambulated her on CPAP. And we were able to bring her over and she was able to get a, a single lung transplant and doing really well. Um, but I think it requires team and it requires commitment. It's a long-term commitment on both sides. Um, and, and, and patients, you know, we have our general selection criteria and contraindications, guideline oriented, you know, if BMI is greater than 35, being on a ventilator for a long time, being paralyzed, being sedated, those are candidates unlike, those are not likely to be candidates, unfortunately, because we just cannot promise that there's going to be a good outcome. And as Corey said, how do you do evaluations? Um, you know, generally I always tell patients there's a lot of testing and sometimes we can minimize that, but things like doing a cardiac cath, you can't do a lung transplant without understanding that the heart is in a good condition. You could have a good set of lungs and have a cardiac event intraoperatively or postoperatively that'll lead to a poor outcome. And also lungs are a limited resource. Uh, you know, in, in, the, in the US, uh, you know, often the number that's cited is 19% out of all the available organs, uh, you know, in lungs that are donated are generally utilized. I mean, that number may have gone up a little bit higher in recent times, 
So, so there's also a limitation, and especially in COVID times, um, there was a paper that was published by one of my colleagues here at Columbia. Um, you know, we did see a drop in areas that were high in COVID burden of transplantation, but also donors, that becomes a challenge. How, how do you get donors when, when you're, you know, primarily involving lungs when it comes to COVID? So, so a lot of challenges to getting organs, a lot of challenges to figuring out the right inpatient referrals. So if you had to kind of drill down and say specifically, what, what candidate would you consider evaluating like who was on ECMO? Um, so that's, that's a great question. And uh, I'm gonna hedge a little bit. And at the same time, I, I'm gonna say these are not absolute, but I think these will help your candidate. Um, ambulation, let's say even if they're on ECMO, you need to think about that. Uh, you need to have a partnership with the transplant center that's comfortable taking a patient that's on ECMO from you. Uh, ambulation, uh, you know, single organ failure. Uh, I, I think that's important. And having some idea of history. For example, if it's a, a young patient who is, you know, 35, they don't need cardiac evaluation. But if it's a 65-year-old, then you need cardiac evaluation. Uh, so also, I think Having that partnership, I keep going back to, uh, you know, being multidisciplinary and having a good relationship with people and calling them up to say, hey, this is what I'm looking at, uh, helps. Um, you know, certainly guidelines are widely available. Uh, you can adopt those guidelines into what is a good candidate. But I think at the minimum, you need single organ failure. Uh, for example, if they're on dialysis, uh, you know, already non-COVID patients on dialysis um, non-COVID lung transplants that end up requiring dialysis have a higher mortality. So in somebody that's going into a transplant already on dialysis, it's not a good thing to do. And, and they're just going to have a poor outcome. And ambulation, um, you know, preserving strength, having that ability to rehab. The rehab potential post-transplant is extremely important. It can differentiate a six-month uh, or longer stay in the hospital, uh, you know, or rehab facilities post-transplant versus you know, recovery. Um, so I think those are two probably the key components, I would say, um, that you need to start with. Again, no active history of smoking. Patients should not be smoking or, or you know, those, those, those are some of those, you know, criteria that come from our guidelines uh, are a very important part of that. But I think that's where I would start. And then I, I think this is a little bit controversial. Um, you know, I bring up the idea of vaccines because now we're starting to get calls and a lot of those calls are coming from patients who are not vaccinated. Uh, certainly this is a preventable disease. I think the you know, first place to start is, you know, to, to say that, you know, patients should, you know, or not patients, or we should, you know, advocate for vaccination. Um, you know, we have a tough time in that scenario. I think it brings up two points. One is if somebody's not willing to take a vaccine, you know, it brings up a question of compliance in somebody like that. Are they somebody that are going to follow up post-transplant? Are they going to listen? Um, so that's important. And it's I, oftentimes I try to inquire about why the person did not get COVID vaccine and, and are they willing to get a COVID vaccine? Is this something that's going to be a barrier? And then reaching back to your own team and having a multidisciplinary discussion. Um, I think those are some challenges. Uh, as you know, most of us, I, I, I think all of us have been vaccinated. Otherwise, we wouldn't have jobs today because we've been given ultimatums by some of our institutions. So I think there is going to be a time where we have to make a decision on also our patients from that standpoint. And I think um, 
So transplant exists at one end of the spectrum, probably for treatment for these patients. But let's spend a little bit of time talking about what are maybe some other options. What are people trying to use and, and whether you're seeing any success with the antifibrotics, steroids, those kind of things. Corey, go, go for it. Sure. Um, so the question was about antifibrotics in these patients. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll take it back to what I was saying before. I think it kind of depends on the scenario a little bit. You know, if I have somebody who, you know, had some underlying ILD to start, they unfortunately are sick with COVID severe enough to where they had an acute lung injury. Um, I, I'm, I'm accelerating my timeline for antifibrotics in those patients. Um, I don't necessarily have, um, a choice because I don't think there is enough evidence out there to say that um, nintedineb and profinidone, those are the two drugs we're talking about. One is superior to the other ones in this scenario, um, to the superior to the other in this scenario. Um, my decision about antifibrotics usually is, is a, that's a shared decision in my practice. I, I, I present both of the drugs to the patients. Um, we talk about side effects. We have a frank discussion about, you know, realistic outcomes, what to expect, and then decide together what's the right choice for them. The, the patients who, who come to us were lung healthy before COVID now have a lung injury and they're, you know, on oxygen, they're physically debilitated. Um, they have like a post ARDS you know, organizing DAD that's still evolving into something, you know, I, I'm not starting those patients on antifibrotics now. And, and I, I say that because I'm borrowing what we do with some of our, you know, ARDS survivors, you know, a lot of those patients will, will settle and not progress. Um, they may always have fibrotic lung disease, but it, we don't see that progression, um, in most of those patients, you know, after they survive their ARDS. And we have to remember that's the outcome we know of with Nintendinib and Profenidone. Realistically, it's, it's, you know, delaying progression, slowing a progression of disease. And, you know, until I see some progression, and that's, again, back to our original discussion about how to follow the patients. You have to follow them closely. This can't be a, you know, a six months and I'll see you in another six months follow-up. We have to see them closely to follow lung function tests, follow exertional oximetry, get an assessment of how their symptoms are getting better, getting worse, have them in pulmonary rehab and decide all those things together. To this point, I, I have started, I'm not sure I've started anybody on an antifibrotic yet um, in, in that scenario, the person who did not have a problem before they had COVID because I'm, again, I'm, I'm realistic about what to expect with antifibrotics today. That may change. You know, we, 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 there's some, there's studies ongoing right now. Hopefully we'll be informed about, about how these patients do that are started right at the beginning of their um, post COVID recovery on antifibrotics. And hopefully we'll get some answers soon. And uh, what about the role of corticosteroids? Yeah, I, there's, I've been watching. There's been just question after question in the chat about that. Um, yeah, so, you know, my, my feeling about steroids has evolved, you know, after taking care of ICU patients, you know, for 18 months now. Uh, on the outpatient side, you know, there, there's one study and, and I'll be, I'll be, I've been trying to, as I bring up clinical trials, I've been trying to put them in the chat for people with links and everything. So the, the one study that I come back to when I consider, um, 
whether to give patients steroids or not, there was a, it's, it's from a year ago. Um, I've lost the reference where to go. Uh, it was done here. It is right here. It was done in the UK. Um, and they, you know, they took a small group of patients. They, they checked in with four weeks after they left the hospital. They, um, if the patients were still symptomatic, they brought them back in, did PFT, did a CT scan. And the ones that still had persistent interstitial lung changes, and these were, these were mostly sort of ground glass looking things, things that make us think about organizing pneumonia. They put them on steroids and they generally started about a half of them. They used prednisolone there. So half a milligram per kilo of prednisolone for a pretty short period of time. I mean, those patients were treated for just about three weeks. And at least the investigators reported um, that, you know, after they tapered them off of them, they repeated PFTs, the patients felt better and their DLCO and vital capacities had improved. Um, so at least there is some literature support out there to, to warrant kind of giving these patients steroids that at, you know, six weeks post-discharge, it might be worth a short course. I mean, this is a low dose of a steroid. It's the fairly short course. I mean, I, if I have somebody with organizing pneumonia, you know, like cryptogenic organizing, for example, I mean, that's a, I mean, I'm, I'm in, I'm in that. I mean, that's three months of therapy probably to really, really, you know, really get ahead of, of, of the disease. Um, the problem with that study is there wasn't a control group. So, you know, were those patients going to get better without steroids? We don't, we don't know, but at least that's something out there. It's from annals and I'll put the, uh, yeah, and I'll put the, the link in the study right now. Um, I have done, I, and I'll admit I've done this from time to time, you know, those patients that are still symptomatic, you know, we're, we're a month from discharge. They don't feel good. Their CT is abnormal. And at least there is a more of an inflammatory phenotype. You know, they're kind of on that more organizing pneumonia side of acute lung injury. That's somebody that I'm probably going to put on steroids. I'm a little higher than that. I'm one per kilo. Um, and I'm, you know, see them back in six weeks, four to six weeks at that dose, see how they're feeling, see how the numbers look, and then decide where I'm going to go from there. Anna, what are your thoughts about uh, antibiotic steroids? I'm back. I missed a little bit of what Corey said. I had some technical issues, so my apologies for that. But um, the question is about antifibrotics and steroids. So let me start with steroids. Uh, I'm with Corey. Um, my approach is to do as little as possible for as short as possible. I think they, there's probably a role in some patients. We're kind of going blind here because there's, there are no randomized controlled clinical trials. There's we're extrapolating from other causes of organizing pneumonia, but I think in some patients where they're symptomatic post-discharge, they have uh, a pattern suggestive of organizing pneumonia on CAT scans with kind of ground glass and a subpleural distribution, so potentially atoll signs, things like that. Um, and they are symptomatic. Those are the patients that I would consider treating. Uh, and I follow them very closely. And I, I, I try to, re, you know, re-image, you know, somewhere from four to eight weeks to, to look for a response and to try to taper as quickly as possible. Uh, so a lot of these patients have comorbidities like diabetes, so that influences my, um, my treatment of them. And I, and I kind of followed the, the algorithm that was in that Annals of APS paper that Corey mentioned. And antifibrotics, um, we don't know. There are some ongoing clinical trials, which I think are interesting and we'll see if there's data for early inter, um, 
initiation of antifibrotics uh, in certain patients who may be at risk for progressive disease, but right now there's no data for it. Uh, and so I don't generally, I don't use them unless there's evidence of progressive fibrotic disease as evidenced by progression on CAT scan or as evidenced by progression on PFPs along with worsening symptoms. And that's a small minority of patients that again would have that PFILD uh, subtype that, that was um, you know, categorized and characterized in the indult study. So those are the patients I would consider antifibrotics for. Other patients should consider enrolling if they have access to those clinical trials. Yeah, I, I think I think inbuild is a good example to use, you know, as guidance about when to do something. You know, patients that have exhibited progression, you know, and that study defined progression three different ways. So you had a lot of options um, about when to put someone. This was an intuitive in that case. Um, that that's good guidance there, you know, about when to do this, but I, I'm, and I'm with you, if, you know, I, I need to, I need to see what happens because we, we discussed the probable parallel with non COVID ARDS. And if those patients are not going to progress, um, you know, then you've got some tough decisions to make, you know, it, it, because if you're going to give them a medication that, you know, our evidence shows, slows down progression and they're not progressing, then, then are you, is, is it really necessary to do that as much as we want to do, to do something? There've been some other uh, questions submitted about maybe other medications, um, anti, um, other immune modulating medications like Celsept or anticoagulants, any role for any alternate things or, or any of those being studied that you know of? Uh, I'll start. I mean, Cellcept, nothing's been studied. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, I use Cellcept as an immune sparing agent if a patient's going to require long, uh, long-term immunosuppression um, for maintenance. And so, you know, as Corey mentioned, there are patients with cryptogenic organizing pneumonia that may require long immunosuppression, and some of those may end up on Cellcept. You know, there is, I guess, some perils that can be made here. I generally haven't had to use CELSEP because those patients with post-COVID organizing pneumonia um, that we've seen either have uh, a, a process that's responsive to um, immunosuppression in the relative short term, and they're not going to need months and months of immunosuppression, or they just don't have a steroid responsive process. I mean, I guess there could be some cases where there's evidence of ongoing inflammatory process in their lungs where I would consider CELSEP, but the very few patients that, that would ever come up. The other thing I do want to mention that was highlighted in that Mayal paper and that um, kind of uh, piggybacks, piggybacks on what Harpreet said in terms of a multidisciplinary approach to patient selection for transplant, I think um, the same kind of uh, approach and benefit can be seen in patients um, with post-COVID fibrosis and access to a multidisciplinary discussion is, is very important and can be very helpful for those patients if you have access to that. In the Mayol paper, before starting steroids, every patient was evaluated um, by multidisciplinary discussion and the decision was made in a multidisciplinary fashion, which I think can be really helpful and beneficial for, for treatment. Okay, and then let's um, spend a few more minutes, I guess, talking about some of the outcomes that we've seen with regards to transplant. 
Um, Harpy, can you comment a little bit about how these patients do when they are able to get transplanted? We know so far. Yes, um, I think we can separate uh, transplant patients into two two buckets when we think about that. Those are patients that already have transplanted and subsequently get COVID, or patients that were referred to us uh, for COVID-related uh, lung disease and or progression of their interstitial lung disease post-COVID. Uh, generally, I would say to you that uh, if those patients have recovered from COVID and they're in good state of health, uh, you know, transplants seem to be doing well. Again, the data here is very anecdotal and, uh, you know, we are talking few transplants her center, uh, you know, it all started with Northwestern. I, I, I was just thinking about that when you talked about that. I can count six patients we've done. I'm sure there are more. Um, you know, I follow actively a few of them. Uh, I, I, it's hard to make conclusions in terms of long-term outcomes. We don't know uh, if they're going to have early chronic rejection. Um, I certainly worry. I would say to you about superimpose infections in these patients because by the time we've received them, often they've already been immunosuppressed significantly. They've been on steroids. Uh, we have done both single and double lung transplants in uh, COVID patients, and they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, with regards to survival post-transplant with COVID, uh, it varies. Uh, there are two papers. One is already published. One we're publishing from Columbia. Uh, and and looking at some of this other solid organ transplants, I think the mortality is probably somewhere between 22, 23 to 35% um, post COVID in lung transplant recipients. Um, so it's certainly worse in patients who are hospitalized requiring oxygen, uh, especially those that require mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, they truly have a poor outcome. Uh, so that's our post transplants. And then ILDs, I, you know, so far the, experience I've had, those patients are doing well, especially after they've recovered. Um, and I think that's where it comes down to selection. Patient selection is key uh, because you want to set them up for success. Uh, you know, if, if you choose poor candidates, you're going to have a tough time getting them to recover and getting them out of hospital. And, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, not doing a transplant is the right thing in those time, those types of scenarios. And, and, you know, more often than not, I, you know, myself and I could probably say my colleagues have to say no to patients that are getting referred. It's not because we don't want to help. I think we just have to be as objective as possible in weighing the risks and the benefits. You know, we have to ensure that we can deliver on an outcome that we think is, uh, you know, appropriate in the sense of what is expected of a lung transplant. Um, going back to historical outcomes in our lung transplant recipients. And if, if we can't achieve that, I, I think that's not a good candidate for transplant. When you're monitoring people who have been referred to on an outpatient basis and considering doing looking at them for a transplant, what are the things that you're following? Are you following imaging, um, PFTs to see if they're progressing? Yeah. I'm, so my philosophy has always been very patient-centric. I think the patient knows before we do that there's something wrong. Um, so, you know, I always, it's an alarm in my head or if the patient's provider calls me, uh, you know, this is not a transplant patient example, but, you know, Anna had referred a patient to me and I, I can tell you that, that, you know, we constantly communicate if the patient is doing poorly. I think that's the key, um, you know, 
Sometimes there are objective measures that are deteriorating. For example, in interstitial lung disease, your FVC may be deteriorating, but the patient may not feel it. But if the patient is feeling something, I think it's certainly also in our guidelines to refer that patient. Um, so there isn't always an urgency on how fast you work them up. Uh, I would say that I always tell patients, um, you know, you need to call us don't wait till your next appointment. If your appointment is at three months and you're feeling unwell at one month, you need to reach out to us. All our pre-transplant patients have uh, numbers of our coordinators. Uh, they're very accessible. We are generally accessible to all our referring providers. Often I give my cell phone number to them. You know, if there's a particular patient that we're worried about, just reach out and we'll work together to figure out what we need to do. And sometimes you have to transfer patients from outside hospitals. I think if a patient, be it who had COVID and has progressed or, or had ILD with COVID that is progressing, that's somebody you've been following at an outside hospital, I think one of the first calls should be to the transplant program that's been following that patient to see that if we can, in a timely man manner, maneuver that patient to be at the transplant center so we can do our best in achieving you know, what we do best. Um, with regards to deterioration, uh, we've had a couple of surprises. Uh, you know, ILD, I think in general, is a, a disease of surprises. Sometimes, as Corey mentioned, uh, you know, some patients could be doing really well, and the next thing you know, they drop their FVC by 20% or 15%. Um, so I think patient, your objective measures, and having some form of follow-up, and most importantly, communication with your providers that are referring as well as with the patient and allowing the patient to have access to you. I think those are very key. And sometimes uh, one of my clinics is right next to our ILD clinics. So, you know, sometimes um, they'll peek at me and they'll say, hey, you know, Dr. Graywell, I just want to run this patient by you. You saw them at this time. And then I'll say, you know, I think patient is deteriorating. Maybe we need to see them earlier. So, so I think those kinds of conversation relationships go a long way in getting ahead of a patient that's deteriorating to try to put in measures so that at least we can give them the best opportunity at success in transplantation. That's great. It sounds like we as pulmonologists definitely have our work cut out for us in following these patients and getting them the care that they need. Um, and a kind of similar question for you, when you're following them outpatient, what are the things that you're keeping an eye on so that you know whether you need to start therapy or try therapy or whether you want to refer them to the evaluators? Sure. So, so my general approach to patients with ILD, for my patients who are stable, I still see them every three to four months with PFPs at every visit that includes at least spirometry and DLCO. Now for patients who I'm worried about, I might see them more often. I might see them every six weeks or you know, I might check in with them on the phone or might do a video visit in between. We're utilizing more and more telemedicine, which actually has been beneficial to some of my, for some of my patients. Um, and so I'm following PFPs closely. I'm following, um, and I'm following their symptoms closely. And again, um, paying attention to, to the patient as a whole as well, making sure they're not losing weight, you know, nutrition. I mean, if, if they're losing weight, that, that really clues me in that something, something's wrong, something's going on, that maybe there's end-stage disease now and, you know, we really need to expedite things. Um, and, and it's the same thing. And I, like Harper, said, we communicate very closely about these patients that I'm really worried about. Um, CAT scans, I follow as needed. If there is a, um, a drop in FDC or DLCO, um, the other thing I, I keep an eye on, if there's a drop of DLCO out of proportion to FDC, I, I you know, worry about pulmonary hypertension developing. You know, I, I walk them in clinic. I make sure they're not desetting, things like that. 
And just to add back to uh, what Anna says, so those are also things that we monitor, um, you know, in the lung transplant, pre-transplant clinics. Um, we have the, also we add the six minute walk test on top of that. Sometimes uh, it's already been done by the LD provider. So we try not to repeat them or, or we try to, you know, sort of kind of keep a close eye where, you know, they may see them and then maybe six weeks later I'm seeing them and then subsequently they're seeing them. So it's three months for each of us, but they're at least seeing two positions at six week periods. So I think that's also helpful in, in monitoring these patients. And, and if you start to see any deterioration, I think, you have to be ready. Um, I, and I think the testing, uh, I think one of the keys is to try to get your testing done while they're in a stable state, uh, especially in those you are anticipate are going to be deteriorating or they're starting to show shines. Uh, pulmonary hypertension, I feel like it goes so under so often undiagnosed in these patients. And a lot of times when I'm seeing them now, you know, we've added a, a great complexity to a lung transplant surgery. Uh, you know, where you may be able to do a, a fairly, you know, uncomplicated procedure. Now, you know, the surgery team has to create a complex uh, plan in managing pulmonary hypertension, you know, intraoperatively. And these patients may come out on extracorporeal life support. And, and, and that'll add to your, you know, complication risk. That'll add to your morbidity. That'll add to your length of stay in the recovery. So I, I certainly agree with um, and I, and I always ask them about their leg swelling. It's, it's very simple things that can sort of cue you in or, or they start saying, I just get winded very fast. And, and, and you know, if, if you're seeing that DLCO drop out of proportion, I think that's, that's a big trigger for me to say, we need to start thinking about listing. We need to start finishing the workup right now. And then I'll convey that back to a provider that has referred the patient to me. I agree hundred percent with everything you guys have said. I mean, it's, it's the rule here is just close monitoring, um, especially in this time where we, we're not quite sure what the natural history is going to be. Um, we, we have to, we have to learn as we go and, and the safe thing to do is just to watch closely. Yeah. And you may, you know, we may find that we, we start picking up pulmonary hypertension, a little earlier in, you know, the ILD world has always been stuck that there hasn't been anything we can do about, you know, group three pulmonary hypertension for the most part. Um, we, we have, there's something now FDA just approved, you know, inhaled troprostanil for, for those patients. So, you know, not saying that's something for these patients post COVID, but we may be able to pick up on pulmonary hypertension a little earlier. Cause I think our men are at least, um, monitoring algorithm may change a little bit and start looking for pulmonary hypertension a little earlier than we would have otherwise. There's a little bit of nihilism with that in the ILD world. That's going to go, hopefully that'll go away. After there, often I think one of the things maybe, uh, you know, both Corey and Anna can comment on this, uh, you know, inhaled therapies, I think sometimes can buy us time while we're in the midst of transplant, um, you know, I think sometimes I see occasionally a patient with, uh, you know, PD-5 inhibitor of some sort, and then they tell me that they acutely got worse and I don't worry about worsening the acute mismatch. I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts. And, and I, I think in, in these patients, these COVID patients, uh, you know, uh, I saw a patient that, that was seven months in the hospital and was at an LTAC, has recovered, has been rehabbing, and is now considering lung transplant. You know, that's a patient that I often worry about developing pH. And I kind of want to hear your thoughts about preventive measures, perhaps, in these kinds of patients. I always talk about oxygenation, ensuring that, you know, it stays above 88%. I, those kinds of uh, thoughts 
from it. You're 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 talking about like inhaled vasodilator therapy, like pulmonary hypertension type therapies. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, I, I, that's kind of what I was referring to from a perspective of buying more time when they're deteriorating. Um, also, like seeing sometimes patients that are already on them and now they've worsened, and sort of your experience. And does that happen in COVID for your patients as well? Uh, yeah, I have not seen that happen with with COVID patients. Maybe because we're not looking for it, not checking it. as you know, to your point, we might be missing a lot of pulmonary vascular disease in these patients. Um, hopefully that won't be the case anymore. Um, I, I have the incredibly good fortune to have a, a really, um, solid pulmonary hypertension clinic where I work. Um, and I, I, I manage a lot of patients cooperatively with them in this setting. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this before about, you know, where, should we be using therapies earlier in these patients, inhaled therapy specifically, because you're, you know, what you're, I think, alluding to is that a lot of the systemic therapies these patients are, can add to that decompensation if, you know, you have to pick the right scenario. So, you know, there are a couple of inhaled prostacyclines available out there that might be helpful. That's a really great question that I've not considered. Um, otherwise, you know, we, because um, in the acute setting, in my institution, we use those quite a bit. And, and the reason is just to what you said in the outpatient setting is to buy time. Um, I'm, I'm using inhaled process cyclones. We use a lot of inhaled nitric oxide in my institution also, um, you know, solely for the purpose of time. You know, I, the patient needs just a little more time to turn that corner. I, I may have given tocilizumab seven days ago, and I'm just waiting for, for that to, you know, to, if it's going to affect a, a benefit, I need to see, I need to see that and I need a little more time before they go on the ventilator. We use it for that setting. We've not talked at all about using them in the outpatient setting for the same reason. That's a really good question. What a great research question that would be. Think of me when you do the research. I, I will. Yeah. We've, we've, we've got some colleagues in common, so I think we can, we can probably work something out if we want to do that. Well, everybody, I think we're just about out of time. So I just want to say thank you to each of our panelists. I think this was a great discussion. Um, and I'm left with the, the thought that we have a lot to learn still, but that the best thing that we can do for the, all of these patients is follow them closely and, and uh, try to learn as much as we can as we go along from each other. So I would encourage anybody who is listening, if they have residual questions to reach out via social media or to chest. Um, to the CHEST uh, COVID task force, which has been uh, doing these webinars every other week or weekly since the beginning of COVID. So thank you all for attending. Thank you, Corey, Yana, and uh, Holly. It was a pleasure. Hope we get to do something soon again. Yeah, this was great. I had a great time. I agree. Thanks, everyone. I learned a lot great. from all of you. Yeah.